We thank God for you. Let's get our Bibles out. Open to Ephesians chapter 2. So if you're looking around and you see people missing, there's a good chance that that's because they're in the Dominican Republic this morning. So we put a large team uh, on some planes yesterday. And so please be praying for them in these days that God will use them according to his great purpose for them as they're on the mission field. Also remember that uh, D group leaders meeting will be today during second service. So if you weren't in the meeting last week, then you need to be in the one during second service. It'll be up in the loft. So be a part of that. Also through all this construction, you notice we're making some great progress. We actually have sheetrock delivered over there. Things are happening. There's lights in the ceiling, you know, it's, it's moving along. So with that, uh, we need to get some other housekeeping things in order. So we're going to uh, ask our community groups. We've got some community groups that want to work on our, I used to say flower beds, but now I say our weed collection uh, that has grown up through all this construction. But we're going to start working on that on Saturday, uh, July 1st. So if you want to be a part of that, maybe you can talk about that in community group today. And you can come on the first and let's knock that right on out. Okay? All right. Ephesians 2, page 1079 in that pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, take that Bible home. If you know somebody that needs a Bible, give them that Bible. So last week we started in Ephesians 2. And I wanted to so desperately get this section all the way to verse 10. But I knew that would be impossible. And so I didn't do verses 8, 9, and 10, and we've still ran long. So we're going to do 8, 9, and 10 this morning. We're going to talk about that. We're going to connect all this together, and hopefully uh, you can stay with me because a lot, of, a, a lot of time around here is spent and invested in talking about identity, and the reason why is because it's so crucial in this, especially in this cultural moment in which we're in. That we, we, identity is a huge theme in the scripture, but it's, it's a, it's bigger right now than I've ever seen it before. Much of the time that we were uh, going through pandemic and all that stuff, I spent just learning and studying and pouring into this issue of identity because I looked around at the world around me that was going completely crazy and I was trying to figure out what in the world is going on and basically what's going on in our culture well it makes perfect sense you can see all the writing on the wall uh, from where I stand now looking back it almost seems like boy we should have seen all this coming but it's always easy to look in the rearview mirror and say well isn't that obvious but what we have is an identity disorder. It's an identity disorder. It means that the identity in our culture has been formed in the wrong order. And that's what's created this situation that we have going on around us. Um, think about it this way. The, the culture around us, you ask yourself, why are people so polarized and anxious and angry? Why? Why is it that not only that people can just come up with sort of, uh, they can just use anything they want to define themselves in any way, shape, or form they want, right? The culture wants to support that and be a part of that. But beyond that, if you challenge the way a person identifies themselves or a way a person finds their uh, professes their identity, then, oh, you're going to get attacked big time. And it's not just that. I mean, if, if you don't align with someone's political ideology, then, then it's almost like you're attacking who they are. If you don't agree with somebody on some certain issue or topic, then you're attacking their very personhood. Where did that come from? Think about how our identity today is formed. 
We, it's formed by looking in, then looking around, then looking up. Now remember, I introduced you to this concept about how we are born into this world of mirrors where all we can see is the reflection of ourselves and others. And, and so we're just broken and twisted and everything is dented and wrong. And then God comes along and flings open a window and we see out this window and we see the gospel. We see the truth for the very first time. And we get to peer out into the marvel of all that God's done. That's what I see the book of Ephesians teaching us. Well, if you live in a world of mirrors, then how are you going to form your identity? You're first going to look at your reflection. And you're going to study that reflection. And then you're going to, once you study that reflection, you're going to look at other people around you and you're going to compare what you see in the mirror to what you see around you. And that's going to determine who you are. Now think of how dangerous this is. And then finally, we'll look up for some spiritual context maybe to bring uh, sort of wholeness to this whole picture or something of, of that nature. And so... When we look at our reflection and determine our own identity, who are we? Well, well then how do we do that? We look at, we look at ourselves and we, we think about our desires. We think about what our dreams. What do we want? What, do, what are we about? What are we? What's, what's us? What's the definition of me? Then I look around at other people. And I compare what I see in my reflection to what I see in other people. And if you stack looking up on those two things, you have a total disaster. Because you've defined your personhood. And then you've looked around to solidify that. What you do is, once you decide in the mirror who you are, then you just look around and find where's the group of people that, that aligns with what I think about me, and you join that team. So if anyone comes along and says, I don't agree with that team, they're attacking your, your very personhood. You understand? You see how this has happened? So you can just say anything you want to about yourself, join the group of people that will accept you, and if anyone says anything contrary to that, now I know what a lot of you are thinking right now are, are way out there factions of our culture. But it's in this room. It's in this room. Because you're on social media and you expose your ignorance all the time. With all your ranting. Why do you feel like people are attacking your personhood if they don't agree with where you align? You're defining yourself by the wrong things. Here's what's plaguing our children. Our children look in the mirror and they're not sure what they see. So then they look around at other people and they either listen to what the other people say or they find a group that will accept them and then that sort of so they don't they don't look in and look out they look out then look in then look up and so if we're not careful if our children don't know who they are who's going to define that It's really not that complicated. And, and then think about this. You got this little device in your hand. The latest research shows that the average American touches that screen 2,600 times a day. 2,600 times a day. Everything in that device is designed around an algorithm to tell you what you want to hear. Every time you click on something, every time you look at something, it's designed 
to show you the side of whatever it is that you agree with, to promote what you see when you look in. Don't you see how simple this is? And so what's happened is we've, we've just become saturated in what we find when we look in. So that when we look out, we just join whatever uh, uh, allegiance to that. And listen, some of you go to church not because you have a vibrant, growing relationship with God, because it, it's not even evident half the time during the week in your life. But you ask yourself, but you go to church, why? Because you align with the values of the church that you attend. The truth. And these verses right here, They make it so clear. Look at how Ephesians 2 begins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now watch what the Bible says. In which you once walked following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh notice carrying out the what mm. you see that we're carrying out the desires that's what we see in ourselves that's what's inside of us our desires the desires of the body and of the mind that's what happened when we were looking in the mirror and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, which cancels out everything that precedes it, praise God. You see, what, we, what we're supposed to do is start with God. See, when we become a Christian, but God, it's a blank slate. We start over again. We start with God. We don't start with, we don't look in and look out. We don't look out and look in. We look up first. You look up first to see what God says about you because he's God so that you can understand his divine design. See, looking up prioritizes, puts in first place the transcendent. That's the beginning of the understanding of who you are. So you can disagree with anything that, any, anything that I think or any group that I agree with or any, and it, it doesn't, it's not, it, it's not me. It's fine. Except the transcendent one who defines me. Because that is who I am. And whether you know it or not, that's who you are. It's God. It's not the people around you or it's not your desires that define you. It's Him and Him alone who defines you and gives you purpose. Look, watch. Being rich in mercy. Watch how this works. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive again together with Christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age we, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus see after we look up and we find the definition of who we are who we really are what we really are then we look out, around, into our community, the community of faith that God puts us in. You don't look up and then look in. You look up and then you look out. Because we look up and realize 
who we were and who we are, and we need people to cheer us on. We need people to, to walk with us. That's why we're called to discipleship, to correct us, to love us, to be part of a family that also looks up so we can join together in this process. Then, and only then, do you look inside. And you begin to explore how God loves you. You see, this is the biblical way of seeing life. You look up, then you look out, and then you look in. But that's going to be a war, quite frankly. Because the enemy has set such a trap. Because I don't suspect that the 2,600 times is going to change much. You better be aware of what's going on. Be aware of the importance of this conversation. So as we move into verses 8, 9, and 10, we need to set our hearts around this reality if you have your listening guide. God does not exist to make me famous. I exist to make him famous. That's what we exist for is so that God will display his immeasurable grace through us. That's the point. Look at verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Some of the most familiar verses in the book of Ephesians. It's about as clear as you can possibly make it. So let's ask some questions that this text answers to help us sort of sort out this process. Let's look up. And let's see what God's telling us. I mean, what does it mean to be saved? And when you tell somebody, I'm saved, what are you saying? When you ask somebody, are you saved, what are you asking exactly? Well, I mean, it means to be forgiven of all sin, to be cleansed of our sin. It means to be justified or declared not guilty before the, the, the great judge of the universe. It means to be reconciled to the Creator. It means to be adopted into the family of God. This is what we've sorted out just in the first, since the first chapter of Ephesians. But now we find out that we're his, his handiwork, His poema, where we get the word poem. The word technically, it, it means rhythm or orderliness or beauty. It, it is handiwork it's 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 a created thing the world the, that word it's only used twice in the new testament here's the other use of it in romans chapter one for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made things that have been made that's the word poema there's that's God's handiwork. That's the things that he's made. So in the beginning, God wrote a poem, if you will, through which he made himself known through all creation. That's what Romans 1 is talking about. God made the world, and then he made us to dwell in it. So us, we, the world and us, we're the the first work expressing his, his rhythm or his orderliness or his handiwork. But God's first poem got ruined, as we're all very acquainted with that reality, aren't we? Through sin, which led us to end up in the circumstance where we were once dead. So God wrote a new poem. He made a new creation. He made us alive, born again. We're his new work. 
now expresses his handiwork. That's what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Because that's what we are. We were saved from the stronghold of sin, the finality of death, the bondage of the powers of evil, the wrath of God. But we've also been saved for being alive with Christ and raised up with him and seated with him as new creations. This is what it means to be his handiwork. But who does the saving? If to be saved is to be essentially new, who does the saving? And it's not just a simple answer that we give a head nod to, but we need to embrace and fully understand who makes it all happen. Because there's a lot of and God gospel tentacles that are reaching into our lives all the time, trying to, trying to put us in places in the story where we don't belong, try to make us believe that we free ourselves from the stronghold of sin by some realization or coming to some conclusion, or that we somehow made all of this a reality. No, even though we act as though we do, nothing could be further from the truth. The fact is, we don't make it happen. We don't. That's the failure of religion. It can never lead to making any of this happen. Salvation is not a result of you or me looking into our heart and discovering our need. Only the living God and Him alone makes it happen. So understand that no one can write the poem of the new creation but the recreator. He's the only one. Notice the Bible says we are His handiwork. Now listen. The two ways, the two times we see poema in the New Testament give us context for how to understand it. I have as much to do with my salvation as I have to do with God's creation. Because that's the two ways it's used to give us clarity and understanding about that. So that's who does it, but why does he do it? Why would God do this? Is it because we deserve it? Is it because we're so special? Because, is it because well, we're special? We're the, we're the imago Dei. We're made in the image of God. Maybe God does it because we're, we're unique and special in some way and therefore deserving of this special privilege. Maybe it's because... We have conscience and will, and so we, we can make a claim that we're inherently good because we are better than other people or haven't done something that's worse than what we can imagine or whatever the case may be. No, this text shows us that God does it simply because of His grace. You've been saved by grace. It's by grace. So God saves us by unmerited favor, undeserved kindness, unearned blessing. But it's good news and bad news. It's a blessing and it's an offense all at the same time. And this is why so many struggle to believe it. You see, grace, it humbles us before it lifts us up. And we just want it to lift us up. But it can't lift us up. You can't rightly understand grace unless it humbles you first, then lifts you up. This is why we struggle to believe God does this just and only according to his grace. Well, then what is our role in salvation? Well, what is it? I mean, does it just drop out of the sky and hit us on the head? Is it like, 
Is it like the flu where we just happen to be walking along where somebody touched or sneezed or something and we catch a germ and a germ gets on us and we get it? And just depending on the, the state of our immune system at any random moment determines whether or not or how sick or how saved or how... I mean, how does it all work? Well, faith. That's what the Bible says. That's what Paul says. Saved by grace through faith. But what does that mean? It means that our role is to, to believe, to trust, to bank it all on God, to put all our eggs, so to speak, in one basket. See, when we're given a gift, the only thing we can do to honor the giver is accept the gift, right? Yeah. So think of it this way. The, the good news is not that the Savior came to the side of the pit that we were in and extended his hand. That's a bad gospel picture. The good news is that the Savior dove into the pit all the way to the bottom. And when he got to the bottom... He called us to fall into his arms. That's the gospel. See, I used to think about the gospel as maybe reaching out and taking the gift. I can remember years ago saying that to students. It's a free gift. All you got to do is reach out and take it. Bad illustration. Because reaching denotes work. No, that's not gonna that's not gonna make it. And then I thought, well, faith is throwing oneself on God and his grace. Throwing oneself? No. That's work too. That's not the gospel. Just faith. How, how can we rightly see and understand this? Faith is collapsing into grace. That's what faith is. Did I do something? Sure, I did something. When he jumped in and climbed all the way to the bottom of the pit I was in and called me to fall into his arms, in the exhaustion and the bewilderment of all of my striving, I collapsed. That's the best way I know to say it. So then where is faith taking us where are we going on this journey are we just to understand so far that we're saved and who does the saving and how he does it and then we all just sit around and wait for him to come get us I mean, what what does life look like what is what is this this journey that we're on. Why, why are we here? How do we sort all of this out? Well, we have to understand that grace picks us up and puts us to work. See, once we've got the right understanding of faith, then we can revisit grace without getting tangled up into some works-based mentality, which, by the way, feeds like crazy. Do you know what works-based religion is? It's Twinkies to your flesh. Your flesh loves it. Or maybe they're not even Twinkies. You know them, what are they called? King ding-dongs? Those things, man, they are. You put one of those in the freezer, that'll shorten your lifespan. That's what your flesh thinks about works-based religion. You know why? Because we get skin in the game. 
See, it makes us feel good about us. That's, that's why we get arrogant uh, to, towards other people. That's why so many people in the world see Christians as judgmental and arrogant. It's religion. Because you know why so many people walk around with their nose up like they're better than other people? It's because they think they are. Because they think they did something. That's why. But a person that understands faith can then realize that what grace is actually doing is it picks us up and puts us to work. So you begin to walk in this new creation, this recreation, this, these good works, Paul says. We're not saved by works, but we are saved for them. For we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, verse 10, for good works. It's so simple. Not by, for. And the clarifier, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, salvation is not just, it's not a new state of being only. It's also a new status. It, it's when, when you look out the window for the first time, when you realize that the reflection of yourself and the, the comparison to everyone else around you has left you broken and empty and bewildered, you know it's wrong. And suddenly the window flies open and you look out and realize what the gospel is actually saying. It's a whole new status because there's a whole new opportunity. See, there's something, the, the gospel is something that we are and it's also something that we do it's it's a vocation not a vacation this is the problem with the with the the think of all the ways we messed this up over the years so many people got so tangled up because they were told that salvation is just don't go to hell What a terrible summation of something so beautiful. You think you looked out the window and all you saw was a sign that said, come here and not go to hell? No, no. You saw this amazing recreation that invited you into a brand new vocation. That's what it is. We walk in good works that God's designed for us. See, what did we used to do? We used to walk, but we were walking dead. Isn't that what the Bible says? Living according to the prince of the power of the air, acting in the lust of our flesh. But now we walk a new walk. So what is Paul referring to when he says, walk in good works, which God has prepared for us? Well, the same thing it's, he says in Titus 2. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see that? See, Paul has in mind God's unique and specific call upon each new creation. That in a sense... When I look out the window of the gospel for the first time and realize there's a whole new world out there, I see the same thing you see. Until we step into it and we begin to walk in it, and then we realize that what I see has some slightly different... It's going to look a little different the way I walk than the way you walk. We don't all walk the same. Some of you are like, wait, what? Well, of course. No one disciple of Christ can do all the good works of God. That wouldn't even make any sense. So each of us is wired for certain good works, aren't we? We're unique. So we're 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 brought into, we're brought alive by the same gospel, we're brought into this new creation, 
But we don't all, we all share some commonalities in our new vocation, but then there are differences also. And as we walk, that's what grace begins to, to guide us through. saved for walking in good works of the kingdom of God what is what is the reward of walking in good works I know what you're thinking you you want me to spoon feed you what good works are be patient I know what you're thinking you're all you all are telling me with your faces but let's, let's first ask the question, what is the reward of walking in the good works that God has prepared for you? Because remember, no one's walking in those good works unless they step through the window of the gospel, unless God brought us through the window, right? So, so, we're, so if you have 10 saved people, five of which are walking in good works and five of which aren't, what is the reward of the five who walk in good works? And the answer is opportunity to walk in more good works. That's what it is. You should have known the answer to that. Remember back in verse 6, he raised us up and with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is our new status. This is our, the new office from which we, we accomplish our vocation. So what will we do? Remember, we, we looked at this. We went back to, to chapter 1, and we looked at where Jesus is seated. And then we looked at verse 6 in chapter 2. He raised us up, and he seated us. So what will we do? Well, we're going to reign with him endlessly in his ongoing poema, his handiwork, God's creative order. There's a place in this order that's been reserved for each of his children. That's what we'll ultimately do is reign with him, right? So that gives us an indication of what this looks like and what are good works now. Good works are clearly not our own good works. So they must be God's good works, right? So you say, well, well, what are they? Well, they're the works that God is doing. What are good works? The works that God is doing. And we join in those things now to prepare us for the ultimate purpose of reigning with Him in glory. So it's not that we're working for God in the world. We're working with God in the world. That's the vocation. There's a big difference between working for and working with. Because if you get a working for understanding, then you're going to drift right back off into the desires of your flesh, aren't you? Because if you work for, you're going to feel like you deserve compensation. But you work with. You work with so that's where we're going. So how do we live as we're going? Do we just pull ourselves up when we get down or when we fail? Do we just exert our, all the human energy we can muster to, to working with God? We don't make ourselves new creations. We don't save ourselves. And if we're not careful, we'll fall into the trap of thinking that we somehow live to save life by our own effort. 
No, he is the one that equips us for walking in his good works, right? He does. Uniquely, he's equipped you for walking in his good works. He even says that he goes before us. Isn't that what he says? Preparing the good works in which he calls us to walk in. Isn't that right? So who is the accomplisher of good works on earth? When I say God, we're, we're working with God, we're joining in God's good works. Well, how does God accomplish work in the earth? Who's the accomplisher of God's work in the earth? Don't say you and me. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the accomplisher. And now he's in us. And so we were created for good works, and good works were created for us. And so you say to yourself, well, what do I, how, how do I, how do I find them, Pastor Tony? Tell me, do A, B, and C. No. No. I'm not going to write you a list. You have the living God within you if you're saved. He's the accomplisher of God's good works. And he's in you to lead you and guide you in the direction of those works. And a matter of fact, you don't even have to think of well, what direction to go in. You're already in the direction where they are. You just got to pay attention to where you are right now. Don't we always say, look around and see where God is working and join him? That's it. Remember something. Paul is writing. And he's in prison. And I suspect that if any of us, me included, were in Paul's situation and we heard this sermon, we would think, well, that's just great, Pastor. But I'm in prison. How can I do the good works of God from prison? To which I say, I don't know. Write the book of Ephesians, maybe? You see, because here's what trumps the reality that Paul's in prison. He's also in Christ. So wherever he's in, he's first in Christ. And being in Christ supersedes anything else we're in. So when you're in trouble, when you're in despair, when you're in confusion, when you're in tension and, and trials, and you're also in Christ. And so that means that the spirit in you is in that as well. And so there's an opportunity to join God in what he's doing in that very moment of your life. I want us to respond to this this morning. I, I want us to to really get this and begin to process the importance what the Bible says our identity is. Who we are. How did we get here? What has he done? What do we do? How did we, what role did we play? What do we do now? Where is this leading us? I want you to, to really begin to wrestle with these things. What does it look like to be and do work what does that look like 
you're waking up tomorrow and with the mundane things of Monday before you. It's not going to feel really super spectacular mountaintop, is it? It could. It should. Because I don't know what you have on a typical ordinary Monday. But I know if you're saved, what you have and whatever you have on a typical ordinary Monday. If you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit's in that Monday. In the ordinary or the shockingly unexpected. And everything in between is in that. And you're not God's poema because you feel like you are. Because then you're just going to be like everybody in our culture who's lost their mind. No, you are because the Creator says that you are. Which means that you are. Which, what does that mean? That means that as you get out of bed and whatever it is you do, wherever it is you go, maybe you're doing the same thing you've been doing for a long time when you realize that it's not that what you need is something different, but what you need is to realize differently about the same thing you've been doing. You've been doing it, but you've been doing it without the realization of who's in that moment with you. That in reality... You are God's poem. Maybe that's where we get the phrase poetry in motion. Huh. You're as poetry in motion. Regardless of where the motion is. That's what you are. So it's in relationship with the master poet that the poem begins to emerge. That's the story. You say to yourself, well, pastor, I don't like the story that my life is writing. If you're saved, you know what my response to you is? And you don't know the story. Because do you think that the God of the universe, who declares you to be his handiwork, who went before you and saved you for good works that he prepared beforehand, do you think he failed? Did he fail? Did he lose track of you? Did did his GPS start recalculating somehow and that's how you ended up where you... Is that what happened? I don't think so. I don't think so. What if we saw Monday with a whole new set of eyes? What if we moved Monday away from all the mirrors and we looked through the lens of that window to see our Monday and our Tuesday, and our Wednesday, and every day. What if we did that? Let's stand and bow our heads. Father, when we consider all that you've done, we consider the extravagance and the detail of what you reveal to us about yourself, your work and your purpose, your creation, and specifically the way in which you love us and what it is you called us to, we are completely in awe. Thank you, Lord.
given us the opportunity to be whole. To understand who we are. To have a framework to understand the, the chaos in which we live in. And not to begin to rustle up in pride as we look around, but to, to be like you, Lord Jesus, when you wept as you rode into Jerusalem. Lord, as we drive down the road, as we walk through the grocery stores, as we pass through our neighborhoods, may it break our hearts. We're surrounded by a world lost like sheep without a shepherd. Basing their lives on lies and deceit. Just like we used to do. Oh Lord, help us to join your good works. Thank you for placing the glorious compass of your Holy Spirit inside of us. Thank you that he is there, alive and well and working at all times, available for us to rely upon and walk in and to participate in what you're doing. Thank you. Give us new eyes to see, Lord. There are people in this room that do not know you this morning. They need courage. They need courage. There are people in this room who don't know you but have been deceived into thinking that they do. They need courage. There are people in this room that need to come and humbly just bow before you and thank you for your goodness. Give us courage. Thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his good name. The altar is open. If you want to come and kneel at the altar, I invite you to come. I'm up here, Pastor Brian.